0: passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. The year was 1428. Men went into the Letterworth Church graveyard with shovels. They weren't planning on digging a grave, They were actually planning on taking a man out of a grave. A man that had been buried 43 years before. They dug him up. They burned his bones. They ground him into dust and threw him in the nearby river to rid the earth of whatever was left of his presence on the planet. Who was this person they had such violent hatred for? What had he done that 50 years after his death, they felt it was appropriate to exhume and destroy what remained of him in his grave? His name was John Wycliffe. Go ahead, Jeremy, and put that picture of him up there. John Wycliffe held some really radical views in his day. These are some of the things he believed. He believed that the Bible is the only safe and reliable way you can know truth about God, and not priests who won't teach from it. He believed that the celibacy of the priests is not a right thing. He couldn't find it in the scriptures. He would say that uh, church men are real men, and they should have the ability to get married and have children like other guys. He also believed that praying to the saints was wrong. He believed that's the reason that Jesus came and that he died, so we can approach God directly through Jesus Christ. We don't need to go and pray to a saint. He also believed that people should be able to read their Bible in their own native tongue. And in 1382, he published a version of uh, the Bible, the Wycliffe Bible, so that people could understand and actually read it. But his most controversial teaching, the one that got him in by far the most trouble, is what he believed about the Lord's Supper. He was taught in that day that after the priest blessed the bread and blessed the cup, that the bread became the actual body of Christ. The cup became the actual blood of Christ. And Wycliffe said, I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's just bread and it's just juice, but it's something that we should do in remembrance of Jesus. It doesn't actually become Jesus. And for that teaching, even 50 years after his death, He was hated by the church in his day. That's why they dug his bones up, burned them, and ground them into dust. Well, this morning we're going to talk about Wycliffe's, one of his most controversial teachings, which is his teaching on the Lord's Supper. We're going to learn today what happens to the bread and the wine after we pray for it, before we eat it. And then we're going to look at who began the Lord's Supper. We'll also learn what kind of blessing we can expect to receive from the Lord's Supper when we take it and we celebrate it. These are some of the questions we're going to find answers to this morning. And hopefully when I'm done teaching, you won't desire to burn my bones, grind them to ashes, and throw them in the river. So I'll do a little better than Wycliffe did. Last week, we were in Mark chapter 14. We were studying verses 12 through 31 you'll probably remember that, that that section forms what's called a literary sandwich. And if you've been with us for a while in this gospel, you know Mark loves these literary sandwiches. He starts talking about one thing, gets partway done, then he flips and talks about something else, and then he returns to his original topic. And let me show you how he does that in this section. On the, go ahead and throw that up there. Thank you, Jeremy. On the outside is one topic. He talks about betrayal. First, he talks about the betrayal of Judas in the front section, and then he talks about the failure and betrayal of the disciples in the bottom section. That's the bread portion of the, of the literary sandwich. Cowardice and betrayal. But look at the center section, which he likes to use that either as an explanatory piece or as a, contra, a contrasting piece. In this case, it's a contrasting piece. Instead of cowardice and betrayal... It's Jesus' courage and faithfulness to accomplish his Father's will, which is to die on the cross in our place for our sin to save the very people who betray him, not just the disciples, but you and me. We're going to read uh, Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 17 through 26. Open your Bibles, uh, and turn to those, that passage, and then stand once you have that. Follow along in your Bibles as I read verses, um, excuse me, 17 through 26. So I'm reading a little larger section than the immediate section we're looking at, just so we can have a little running start into it before we study it. Beginning in verse 17. Follow along with your eyes and your copy of the word. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That ends the reading of the word. You can be seated. We're going to break apart our study of the Word this morning under four headings. First, we're just going to look at some background on the, the Passover that Jesus celebrated. Then we're going to look at this as the last Passover Jesus celebrated. Then we're going to look at it as the first Lord's Supper that Jesus celebrated, because this is the last and the first meal at the same time. And then we'll just look at some practical applications that we can learn about the Lord's Supper from what we studied this morning. So if you have your outlines, well, starting on the top, we're on point one. What is the background of the Passover that we need to know? For 1,500 years since the Exodus, God's people had celebrated the Passover meal. And as I said, this is the last Passover that will be celebrated. The Passover is a sort of remembrance of the old covenant that was begun under Moses. And it was all about us keeping God's law us trying to be right with God. But here in this meal, Jesus will begin a new supper, the Lord's Supper, which will be about the new covenant, which won't be about what Moses' covenant, it'll be about Jesus' covenant. It won't be about us keeping God's law, it'll be about Jesus who kept God's law for us. And he died in our place and rose forgiveness of our sins. And it's simply about us trusting in what he has done, not in what we do. Historically, as we learned last week, this was actually a very quick meal. People were to eat it uh, originally with a staff in their hand and their cloak tucked into their belt. But by this time in history, this had actually lengthened to a rather long and lengthy meal that took the whole evening. And it's actually a good thing it did. Because Jesus had a lot to cover with his disciples during this meal. Mark gives us just a very terse uh, recollection of it. But if you go to other Gospels, such as the Gospel of John, you find that he taught a lot. I mean, chapter 13 all the way through chapter 16 is just the teaching Jesus gave at that meal. Then you have John 17, which is his high priestly prayer at that meal. Plus, you have Jesus is going to take his time to wash the disciples' feet at that meal. Plus, everything else that takes place. So this is a lengthy meal. Passover, by the way, actually began to be celebrated much earlier in the week, even though at this time we are now at the end of the week. Some of you will remember that the Passover lamb is selected early in the week. It's usually selected on Monday by the people. That way the people would have the path over overland with them. They would become acquainted with the animal before that animal died. And it actually made the death of that animal far more significant to them. If the death of the animal wasn't significant to them, it would be like going to the store and buying hamburger. There's just no relational connection there, and no significance. When we were studying the Gospel of Mark um, a few months ago, before we took a break from it, we had studied the triumphal entry. And we know that that took place on what is called Palm Sunday. But do you remember what we learned about Palm Sunday? Do you remember that it actually probably didn't take place on a Sunday? But we learned at that time, from what we can tell historically in the Bible, it actually took place on a Monday. And here's where an interesting parallel takes place. In the triumphal entry... Jesus was selected by the people to be their king on a Monday, the same day that the people selected the Passover lamb that would be slain. The Gospel of John also tells us that Jesus died at the end of the week on Friday afternoon when the traditional time was that the Passover lambs would be slain. Jesus was selected when the Passover lambs were selected. Jesus died when the Passover lambs died. And so Jesus followed the Passover lamb all the way through this week. Passover and the lamb of Passover pointed to Jesus and what he came to do. It was his death that would ultimately allow death, true death, eternal death, to pass over God's people. Passover, the death, Passover death for you, And for me. Now let me give you some evidence for this. For instance, uh, in scriptures I wrote this down. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, how did he identify him? The next day, speaking of John, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And and how did he identify him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb. Then you get down to Hebrews. Hebrews. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. God didn't actually desire the death of animals. They were just living pictures, pictures pointing to what Jesus came to do. That God had actually prepared a body for him so he could die and actually take away sin. The death of animals just figuratively, temporarily covered sin. Hebrews chapter 10. And he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus just... um, completed and did away with the whole Old Testament sacrificial system because it was simply pointing to him. And Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of our sins for all time. He died, what does it say, once for all. So the picture I want you to remember in this section is that Jesus followed the Passover lamb because the Passover lamb actually just pointed to what Jesus came to do. He was selected at the same time the Passover lamb was selected. He died when the Passover lamb died. But he actually made a real difference. where Passover lambs didn't. He enabled us to be forgiven of our sin and to approach God. And you wonder, well, how can I prove that actually took place? Do you remember what happened when Jesus died? What was torn in two from top to bottom torn apart by the very hand of God itself, God himself, the veil that separated God and the Holy of Holies from the rest of the people. Now there is no longer any barrier separating us from God because Jesus, when he died, actually paid for our sin and enables us to come into God's very presence. No animal did that before. Only Jesus could do that. Let's move on to the second point. Uh, Jesus celebrated the final Passover meal. And we'll just look at this and sort of study this meal so we can see how he builds off of it. It begins with this. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Last week, we spent some time explaining how this Passover meal was set up. And for many of you, I heard that a lot of that was new information. Judas was very eager to betray Jesus. He was looking for that opportunity all week, but never had it because Jesus was always around the crowds during the day, and he left the city at night, going back to Bethany. But this was the opportunity he would be waiting for. Jesus had to be in Jerusalem. It would be at night. It would be away from the crowds. It would be under cover of darkness. This is what Judas wanted. But Jesus, who is large and in charge and in control of all things, would not allow Judas to betray him until he was ready for that to happen, until after this meal was over. And to ensure Judas couldn't do anything, Jesus set this thing up clandestinely. He had arranged ahead of time for where the meal would take place and a special sign to be able to identify it. And Jesus sent Peter and John into the city. And there was a man who was waiting for them at the city gates, looking for them. And he had a water jar. And as soon as he saw Peter and John, he did a sign. He picked up his water jar and began walking. That was the sign Peter and John were told to look for. When you see a man pick up the water jar a water jar at the city gates, start to follow him. And he will bring you to a house where the room will be all set up and ready to go. That is where Jesus took the rest of the disciples with him that evening. Jesus shows up with Judas. Hey, no need to leave to go prepare anything. Peter and John set it up ahead of time. Let's all be seated. You can't go till I'm ready for you to go. And so he locked him down. Then it continues. And they were reclining at table and eating. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Last week, we, we learned that uh, this meal was eaten in a reclined position. It was on a low table. They had couches that were uh, lengthy, and they lay on the couches on their left-hand side. And some of you wondered, well, do you mean they ate all their meals that way? No, they didn't. Most of their meals were eating with, eaten on tables and chairs, just like we eat in our houses today. But not this kind of a meal. Uh, this was a special meal. It was a reclining meal, and you ate it laying on your couch, which, by the way, is biblical evidence that you can have food on the couch, no matter what your parents say. Now, I began to to do some research into the Passover meal. They had to eat the Passover lamb. Josephus tells us that there could be no less than 10 and no more than 20 per Passover lamb. I haven't worked with lambs, and some of you farmers might be able to help me, but I think they're probably a little bigger than a turkey. Like a lot bigger than a turkey. And you know how big a bird is, and how many people it can field for Thanksgiving. Imagine what it would be like if you have to eat a whole lamb. By the way, incidentally, there was not allowed to be any leftovers. They had to eat the whole thing. it had to be done before midnight. The no-leftover rule uh, is found in Exodus chapter 12. There was only 13 of them trying to eat an entire lamb. Plus, they had all of the bread to go with that meal. Do you think they overstuffed themselves? Most definitely. And that sort of explains what happens when you get to the Garden of Gethsemane later that night. Jesus is praying and he's sweating drops of blood because of the stress about going to the cross. Every time he comes back, what were the disciples doing? Because they're in a food coma. Literally. Or should we call it a lamb coma? Because they had to eat so much of that food. There's a lot of food that's in this meal and most of us have not been through a passover meal so what i did is i wrote i wrote down the steps of the passover meal and i want to walk you through them so you can understand what happened the way to um, perceive the meal and think about it is it's divided up between four cups of wine that they had to drink and some of you are thinking well this is great Four glasses of wine for one meal? Man, they were getting slashed. Uh, Actually not. It was doubly diluted on water. So you didn't get wasted on this wine. But it still was a lot to drink. Look at how much food they had to consume. Number one, there was a prayer of thanks followed by drinking the first cup of wine. Number two, there was the washing of hands. This symbolized the need to cleanse themselves of sin. Plus, they needed the practical aspect of clean hands before they ate. Let's look at this from a practical angle. Just so you know, they didn't have knives, forks, and spoons. They ate everything with this meal with their hands. And so they had to clean their hands. And this was even pre-COVID. See, kids, you had to wash your hands in in the Old Testament times as well. But it wasn't just a practical cleansing of hands. There was a, a figurative and metaphorical aspect to this, that you needed to cleanse yourself of sin, and God's people were to be clean of sin. This most likely, uh, during this time, is when what happens in Luke 22:24 24 takes place. Some of you may remember that. All of a sudden, the disciples got into an argument. It was the argument over which one of them is the greatest. Proud little guys, aren't they? And if you've been with us for a while, you know in the Gospel of Mark, they've been in this argument multiple times over which one of them is the greatest. I do better miracles than you do. Oh, Jesus likes me more than he likes you. In fact, they were so proud that all of them refused to wash one another's feet. Usually in that society, what would happen is the lowest person of the room would, would wash the other people's feet because they came in off the roads with sandals and dirt and grime, and that's how you, you did things. But they were so proud, they wouldn't do that at all. So Jesus, who is the head of the meal, the host of the very meal, gets up, takes a towel and a basin of water. While they're big, busy arguing over which one of them is the greatest, And he humbles himself. He washes their feet. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, you know, I have given you an example that you should follow. He says, I am among you as one who serves. Greatness in this life is not found in lording it over others. Greatness, according to Jesus, is found in how we serve others. That's most likely where Jesus washed the disciples' feet the same time when it comes to the cleansing of hands. Then the third step was this. The youngest son typically asked the patriarch of the family this question, what is different about this night? In which case, the patriarch told the Passover story about their ancestors. Since it's just the disciples that are in the room, I don't know which one of them asked the question. But we do know who would be the patriarch in the room, the head of the room. It's Jesus. And it was Jesus' opportunity to retell the Passover story. Oh, I wish I could have been there. Because I'm sure he told the Passover story, not just with what it was a bike in the past, but he talked about what he was about ready to do in the presence. And how their ancestors had been saved from slavery and certain death in Egypt. But he was saving them from slavery to sin and certain eternal death. How the perfect and pure pure and spotless Passover lamb. And the blood of that lamb enabled death to pass over their ancestors' household. But he would be the perfect and pure pure and spotless lamb, and his blood would enable death to permanently pass over their lives and their household. He just totally filled that in, which I think is pretty cool. Next, they would sing. They sung Psalms 113 to 115. Then, bread was broken and passed. It was dipped in bitter herbs, which is essentially horseradish, plus haroseth soft. You remember what that was last week. It's fruit salsa. Remember the chips and the dip? Bible scholars believe that this is likely where Jesus took the bread that was passed, and traditionally it was done in complete and total silence, and he spoke these words. This is my body, which is for you. Now, maybe he did that during the bread. Or we don't know exactly how it goes. We don't know for sure, but most likely that's where this took place. Next, you go back to the second cup of wine. At this point, we've, all only, we've only done appetizers. We haven't even gotten to the main meal. Next was the main meal of unleavened bread, haroseth sauce, and of course lamb, eating the whole thing. Then was the third cup of wine that was drunk. This is when many people believe that Jesus said, This is the cup of the new covenant which is in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Then they sang again. Sang Psalm 116 through 118. Then they had the fourth cup of wine that was drunk and the meal came to an end. A lot of food lengthy meal but I want you to think of this angle Jesus had been alive for 30 years at that point Jesus had celebrated the Passover with his family and with others for 30 years at that point every Passover he celebrated when he saw that lamb being slain he knew it was a picture of what God the Father had sent him to do He knew that in less than 24 hours, the picture would go away and the reality would take place, that he would be slain and it was his blood that would allow death to pass over God's people once and for all. Well, that's the Last Supper. Now let's flip to the other side. Let's, excuse me, the Last Passover. Let's look at the First Lord's Supper and how he repurposes this mark fourteen twenty two and as they were eating, he took bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, "Take this is my body." Well, when did this take place? Uh, you'll remember it 's most likely between the first and second cup when the bread was traditionally passed and then it was eaten with fruit salsa and sometimes bitter herbs at that point. It, Jesus repurposes this and says, just as the unleavened bread was to remind you about how your ancestors quickly left from Egypt because God graciously took them out, now this bread is to remind you about how I will take you from slavery, from sin and death. Now there's an interesting uh, part here. I'm going to bring this over to you. Sometimes when you're doing communion, you'll have pastors that will say, as they're passing it, they'll say, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Have you ever heard that? When you hear that, tell them they're wrong. That's not what Jesus said. In fact, I was told this after first service. If you look at our sort of discount communion cups, that's what it says. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. That's wrong. This was not done by theologians. This was done by marketers. Jesus did not say this is my body that is broken for you. He said this is my body which is for you. Check out every single occurrence of the Lord's Supper. Whether it's in 1 Corinthians 11, whether you want to go to Matthew, whether you want to go to Mark or to Luke, which is the other places it occurs. Now, Why is this important? Not that it is not just grammatically there, but theologically it's important. When Jesus died on the cross, remember at the end when they went to break the legs of the thieves that were on his left and on his right? They broke their legs. But when they came to Jesus, did they break his legs? No, they didn't break his legs. In fact, John makes a big point of that in his gospel. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled that not one of his bones will be broken. So was his body broken for us? No, his body was given for us. So that's a little bit of a uh, theological bit of fun there. So if you happen to be at some place and somebody is doing communion, they say, this is my body, broken for you, you can say, that's not what he said. It wasn't broken. Now what happens when we take this bread? Jesus did say, this is my body. Does that mean that the bread and the cup literally becomes the the body and the, the blood of Jesus? If you're going to take those words literally, it would sound like that's literally what happens. This is my body. What I like to do when I'm studying something that doesn't quite make sense in the Gospels, I like to go to another Gospel, because sometimes the other Gospels say things a little differently. The same event, but just a little more information to understand it. Mark is typically very short in what he says, Luke is typically the longest to give us the most amount of information of what transpired. And so when you go to Luke, this is what we read about what Jesus said. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the point that John Wycliffe Made was in his disagreement with the Catholic Church of his day. This is bread, he said. It was bread that is pointing people to Jesus' body. It is eaten in remembrance of him. Nobody that night thought they were literally eating Jesus. They thought they were eating with Jesus, not eating him. Incidentally, uh, remember, this is the Passover meal. The Passover meal is filled with metaphors and pictures. The horseradish, the bitter herbs, is to picture the the bitterness of the slavery of people in Egypt. The bread that they eat uh, without yeast is to picture the, the quickness of which they had to come out. The purity of the lamb that was sacrificed is to picture the purity of the sacrifice that would be necessary. All these things are metaphorical. They're to picture. Oh, there we go. Okay. Now, there are some churches that I think, uh, in an effort to take Jesus literally, they believe, and I know there's churches that believe this, they believe that when uh, the priest blesses the bread and the cup, the bread and the cup literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. That's theologically known as transubstantiation. We don't believe that, by the way. We believe that it's just bread and juice and that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. And to take Jesus literally is to realize he was speaking metaphorically. Other churches uh, believe in something called consubstantiation. This usually typically comes from the Lutheran tradition. They believe that it is literally bread and, and juice, but they believe that when the priest blesses it, it soaks up the spiritual presence of the body of Jesus and the spiritual presence of the, the blood of Jesus. Sort of like a sponge that soaks up water. The sponge and the water are distinct, but the, the water is in the sponge. Now, this has resulted in a real problem. If you believe that the bread and the cup become Jesus' body or take on the spiritual presence of Jesus' body, what do you do with the leftovers? Because you can't throw Jesus' body in the trash. You can't throw Jesus' blood down the sink. So you end up having to put him in the freezer. It's called Jesus on ice. But we believe that the bread is just bread, the wine is just wine, but it is... um, but it is essentially there in remembrance. Now, let me just look at the rest of this. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine. Notice it's fruit of the vine, it's not blood. Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Why does he say this cup is the new covenant in my blood? If you understand the Old Testament, every time God would inaugurate a covenant with his people, he would inaugurate it through the shedding of blood. It was the blood of an animal, and the blood was typically spattered across God's people and sprinkled that way. They were covered in the blood. But here is a different kind of a covenant. Instead of animal blood... It is the blood of God's own Son. Guarantee of a far better covenant, a far greater seal, that Jesus made this new relationship between us and God based on what he did, not based upon what we do. So while we don't believe that the bread and the cup are anything but the bread and the cup, We do take the Lord's Supper seriously because it is something we take in remembrance of him. And with that in mind, let me look at some practical benefits of the Lord's Supper and why we take it seriously. Number one, the Lord's Supper is a regular reminder of our need for Jesus. When I typically teach on the Lord's Supper, I like to couple teaching um, baptism at the same time. It sort of reminds us of an anniversary celebration and a wedding celebration. A wedding celebration is ideally something that takes place once at the very beginning of your relationship with your spouse. But an anniversary celebration is something that should take place every year in relationship with your spouse. And in your anniversary, you go back and you celebrate that relationship that exists. Isn't that the same thing that happens with baptism and the Lord's Supper? Baptism is a one-time public celebration and declaration of your love for Jesus Christ at the beginning of your relationship with Him. But the Lord's Supper is something we go back to regularly to remind us of our relationship with Him and celebrate that relationship with Him, which is why we do that. After first service, someone asked me if I could point this out. By the way, um, typically the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper every single time they gathered Well, we celebrate it once a month. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's an important thing that should be celebrated regularly. Next point. The Lord's Supper is a regular chance to rededicate ourselves to Jesus. Isn't that what happens in that time of silence before we take the Lord's Supper together? Isn't there a a sort of a special and a holy moment when you're holding the bread and the cup In the busyness of this life, you finally have a chance to pause in this world, to fix your thoughts upon Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And don't you find yourself sort of rededicating yourself to him in that moment? That's one of the gifts of the Lord's Supper. In a busy life where we can drift away from Jesus, the Lord's Supper brings us back to the simplicity and purity of Jesus and our relationship with God because of him that we desperately need. Also, the Lord's Supper provides us with spiritual nourishment from Jesus. Ordinary food nourishes our physical body, but celebrating the Lord's Supper nourishes us spiritually. What do I mean by that? Well, reading the Bible, doesn't that nourish you spiritually? Being in fellowship with your church family, doesn't that nourish your relationship with Jesus Christ? Enjoying our worship songs together. Doesn't that do you spiritual good? And in obedience to Jesus Christ, celebrating the Lord's Supper, it also nourishes our relationship with Jesus Christ. God has given it to us, or Jesus has given us to us, and told us to regularly celebrate it. It's spiritually good for us. It's spiritually right for us. The Lord's Supper is also a regular reminder of Jesus' love for us. The earlier points, I I pointed out how it's a time for us, essentially, to seek Jesus. But isn't the Lord's Supper also a time when we get to sort of re-experience Jesus? That as you're holding the, the bread and you're holding the cup, and all of a sudden you find yourself overwhelmed by the fact that the same Jesus who created this entire vast universe loves you enough that he chose to put all of himself into a human body permanently forever? To die the most vicious and heinous death known to man? To take on all of your sin and my sin and God's wrath, God the Father's wrath and to die on the cross to save you? Holding the Lord's Supper reminds us how much Jesus loves us more than anyone on this earth ever possibly could. Holding the Lord's Supper before we take it should rightfully move us to tears. Not tears of sadness, but tears of joy. Because we are so loved by Jesus who died for you and for me. The Lord's Supper, by the way, is also a source of unity in the church. Most people don't realize this. They often think that the Lord's Supper is something that just deals with us vertically between us and God through Jesus Christ, but it also has horizontal dimensions to it. Jesus didn't just connect us to God, but he made us into a body, and he connected us with one another. And that's ever so present in the Lord's Supper. Look how Paul talks about this with regard to the bread. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread in the Lord's Supper. That's ideally why we've typically, in better times, sort of broken a loaf and passed out the bread, because we are one body. Jesus had the same theme going on with the cup. Look in the Gospel of Mark that we read earlier. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. Now, everybody had a cup in front of them for that meal. Remember, there was four cups of wine they had to drink out of their own cup? But Jesus took one cup and passed it around to all of them because they are one body knit together through him. And communion is a time for us to remember that Jesus hasn't just restored us to God, but he's made us a family with one another. And let me give you one other point here, and this one's a little bit more controversial, but I think it's important. There are times when we may want to temporarily abstain from the Lord's Supper. Paul talks about this. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If you're taking notes, uh, there's two little phrases I'd like you to circle in this section by Paul. Circle an unworthy manner and circle without discerning the body. And here's the points. We should temporarily abstain from the Lord's Supper if we're not using it as a time to focus on Christ. If you look at the larger perspective of the book of 1 Corinthians and what's going on in that, you can read that some people were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were coming and some were getting drunk. (laughs) Others were hungry. Others were having a big feast of it. And it's looking like a casual meal rather than a meal that should focus them upon Jesus Christ and what God has done for him. And if the Lord's Supper, whenever or however you may take it, is not a time when it's allowing you to focus on Christ, maybe it's not a time you should be taking that supper because it's all about Him. The other point is when he talks about the importance of discerning the body. We should temporarily abstain from the Lord's Supper if we are not critically examining our relationships with others in Christ. Discerning Our body in Christ. I talked about this earlier that the Lord's Supper is not just about restoring us to God vertically, it's restoring us to one another horizontally. And if we are in a broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, and we're not attempting to make that right, not attempting to act like the body of Christ, maybe we should temporarily abstain from the Lord's Supper until we've attempted to to restore that relationship. It's the same thing that Jesus said. If ever you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember you have a problem against your brother, leave your gift at the altar, go and restore that relationship with your brother and then return and give your offering. Same thing. So maybe there are times when temporarily, just temporarily, we want to say, hey, I don't want to make a mockery of what Christ has done for me by celebrating this supper I want to take it genuinely. I want to take it seriously. And I want to do what I can to restore a horizontal relationship that has been broken between me and my brother or sister in Christ and then return and celebrate it with great joy. Here are the two application points I like to give you this morning. Jesus transformed the last Passover into the first Lord's Supper. The Passover pointed to what Jesus came to do the Lord's Supper really looks back on what Jesus has now done for us. Also, while the bread and the cup does not literally become the body and blood of Christ, we take it seriously. It connects us to Jesus vertically, and it connects us to one another horizontally. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Hopefully you're able to get a, a cup and a little wafer that's on the top of the cup when you came in this morning. They were they were there. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give a few minutes of silence. And during the few minutes of silence, I'd encourage you just to talk to Jesus. Thank him for coming. Thank him for dying for you. Thank him for loving you. And also thank him for giving the Lord's Supper that continually brings us back to how Jesus gave his body and his blood for us. I ask you, before you start to pray, please take the time to at least make sure you've got that bread out and ready to go and and that cup a little cracked open so you can eat it. And if you happen to miss those elements and you'd like to partake in those elements because you're a Christian, during that time of silence, just silently get up and you can head to the back and, and pick up a piece of bread and a cup and those little sealed packages together. So I'm going to give you some time of silence just to talk to Jesus, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.